welcome to another On The Couch session with myself, Henry Jennings from Marcus Today. And as usual on the virtual couch, I've got a really interesting guest joining me, someone who's a real expert in his field. Having been a geologist when he first left uni, he worked for Western Mining Resources and spent some time at Mount Keith at the Nickel Mine there and Olympic Dam, Mount Isa. And recently, this gentleman, Headley Widdup, Executive Director at Lions Selection Group, which is an ASX-listed specialist investment manager looking at junior miners. So it's really exciting to have Headley along today, and I'm really delighted that he's agreed to join us. He's very well credentialed and knows everything about everything to do with gold mining, which is, of course, a very topical thing at the moment. Just before we get into the interview, just remember this is general advice only, so please do your own research. Contact your own financial advisor regarding any of the thoughts, ideas, or insights that Headley and I discuss in this podcast. Headley, welcome. Thanks for joining me on the virtual couch this week. Hi there, Henry, and thanks for having me along. It's great to be invited. Of course, gold, pretty topical at the moment. What do you make of what's happening in the gold market currently? Well, to simplify it, Henry, I'd have to say that I think there's more buyers than sellers, which is the biggest difference um, from, call it even a year ago, or certainly two years ago, where there was far fewer buyers. So there's a lot of money wanting to pour into that space, and it's having an inflationary effect on the value of um, not just the metal, but uh, the equities of the people who produce uh, gold as well. So so where do you see the gold price going from here? There's lots of people, you know, we've we've talked about $2,000 US as, as a level. Where do you see it going in the next sort of six months to 12 months? Gold's a difficult one to call as far as putting a price on it because um, it's a very unusual commodity. Uh, If you were to try and compare it to something like iron ore or copper, uh, those trade on fundamentals of supply and demand. And gold does to a great extent uh, as well. But iron ore, let's say you've got a $100 scenario, a $200 scenario for iron ore. There are steel mills in China that will start to bleed and uh, become far less profitable the higher that price goes and push back. They will manage stockpiles. They'll buy things from elsewhere. Uh, So there's a natural sort of upper price that you can assume for a lot of consumable commodities. Gold doesn't have that. So there's no point where the consumers of gold um, have any pricing power that's brought about by them becoming severely unprofitable or, you know, really having their margins slimmed down. Gold is consumed in jewellery, it's consumed in dentistry and a little bit in electronics, but it's a very, very small part of the market. The, the, the greater part of the gold market, in contrast to any other commodity market, is that people hold it because they think it's become, it can become more valuable or they hold it because they're worried about the value of their other assets or investments uh, changing um, and, and the gold is a protection against that. So we've moved over the last, let's call it two years, from an environment where people were expecting interest rates to creep upwards. Uh, that would probably put uh, a better value under the rest of the market, you know, bring us back towards conventional economics. That's fallen away and people are now worried about lower interest rates for longer. Gold has always flourished in a market where people are worried about low interest rates. And uh, I think for that reason, it's brought a lot of buyers into the space. But I don't see that that price is going to be capped by them becoming worried about uh, whether anybody else is unprofitable in it. So gold at 2000 bucks probably makes gold at 3000 bucks look achievable. And just like gold at 3000 bucks would make 4000 bucks look achievable. <laughs> Yep. I don't think I don't think that within six months we're going to be touching another thousand dollar milestone. Uh, Two thousand is certainly achievable from where we are now, but um, upwards from there, I think you'd probably have to just reflect on some of the previous uh, bull markets for for a bit of a historical uh, comparison there. But they tend to start where you have a, a gradual appreciation and the bigger multiples come towards the end. So, mm. you know, if we were thinking that you would see similar numbers of multiples as we've seen in the past, which could be anywhere between, let's call it five and eight uh, times multiples on the gold price, 
then you'd expect that towards the tail end of it. And uh, doubling of gold price would probably happen as rapidly as, um, you know, the three to five times uplift that you have after that. So I'm sorry, that's a, a really glib and nonsensical, uh, misleading and uh, non, non-responsive non answer. <laughs> but I think the gold no. price is going to go up and it's hard to say how far. I, I think gold is, uh, is one of those just that emotional commodity. Uh, ever since uh, Auric Goldfinger had his laser pointed at James Bond's <laughs> private parts, I think it's become very emotional for a whole new generation of uh, of investors. I, I was reading an article you had on uh, Livewire recently when you were talking about unprecedented times and the, and what we've seen during this uh, this current pandemic, and especially I guess what we saw in March and coming out of March. How do you see the winners and the losers from these un unprecedented times, which, as you pointed out in your article, is a very overworked word at the moment. <laughs> it's it's uh, probably been one of the words of 2020. <laughs> I, I, I don't know, Henry, if it's too early to say that I know who the losers are going to be from this COVID-inspired market or COVID-influenced market, because I'm just not entirely sure what happens next. The winners so far have been big tech. Uh, gold has been a big winner. And there's been plenty of speculative ventures that um, have flourished in a market which is apparently less worried about what earnings are going to be over the next 12 months, which I think has probably lifted the lid on some of the reasonably valued, but otherwise not connected to the reality of earnings style startup companies, which you know proliferate many of the equity markets of the world. I see potentially, or personally, I should say, a lot more reality around the valuations that are being applied towards gold companies. So I'd, mm. I'd call them a winner. And I think they've probably got the capability, given my economic outlook, uh, of being winners over the next 12 to 18 months if the equity market uh, sentiment were to change towards the way it values earnings, then I suspect that some of the companies which have re-rated most significantly in this market might not be winners as long-term as uh, the gold market could be. So I, I suppose to, to put my spin on it, I think there's, the winners have been speculative and gold, and the speculative could fall away uh, depending on what happens next. And that can happen quite quickly in those uh, speculative ones, I guess, as well. We've, we've seen that in the past, that's for sure. Well, the past can be a useful indicator of the future, can't it? Um, we're, we're in a we're in an interesting market now, I think, because if you look back over however many economic cycles and uh, equity market booms and busts as you want to, every time there's been an equity market bust, there's been something for investors to really rile against or hate. You know, in the GFC, it was like, well, the banks have been irresponsible. Don't like the banks. In mining busts, it's miners have been irresponsible. We should hate the miners. After the dot-com bust, it was, well, the, the dot-com stocks have been irresponsible. We should hate the dot-com stocks. After the COVID um, thing hit in sort of February, March, and a lot of money washed out of the market, but it washed back in again. And I wonder if what that had a little bit to do with was that there was nothing really to rile against. It was just that the equity market wanted to still be the equity market and there'd been nothing to shock people out of um, holding it and certainly nothing to make them think that any of the stocks they were holding were any more risky than they had been before and without that perception it probably means that the money stays in the market rather than mm. moving to other spaces like it has done typically in other busts and we, we've got also i mean i guess one of the big stories of gold this year has been the huge money printing that we're seeing from uh, the federal reserve the ecb and also to some extent from the, uh, not really, but the Reserve Bank in terms of stimulus and keeping those rates at record low levels, uh, as we've seen around the world. And of course, we've seen that with the uh, the falling US dollar as well. We've got some risks coming up, haven't we, in, in 
America. I mean, apart from the obvious ones, but there there is a bit of an election coming up in November. How do you see that playing out, especially given the backdrop of the US dollar and, and the gold price as well? Is that going to pose a significant risk for the market going forward in the next three months? I, th I think it probably poses a lot of risks to the market over the next three months and, and probably beyond that as well. Uh, my personal proclivity is that neither of the candidates are a particularly strong choice for president, but um, we haven't really been spoiled for choice on that front for quite some time now. So <laughs> no. perhaps, perhaps we shouldn't be too greedy about it. Uh, no. Presidential elections, particularly ones where Donald Trump are involved, feature volatility and volatility and uncertainty around politics and particularly sabre rattling, which is something that he's been very fond of when he seems to lose his way on what he should responsibly be paying attention to, uh, are things which inject a lot of interest and excitement into the gold market. It, it's un unfortunate, but you know, when people around the world are disenfranchised to some extent or there's a fallout, that often plays well into the gold market. When it, when it falls away and, um, and, and certainty comes back into the market, that'll often soften the gold price a bit. But I think over the duration of the uh, presidential election, we're quite likely to see uh, allegations towards China, um, discussion of trade wars. Um, there's going to be lots and lots of finger pointing around management of COVID-19, particularly in the States. And there'll be all sorts of probably, maybe not making up facts, uh, because it's just called fake news if it's uh, real facts. He wouldn't do that, would he? <laughs> but uh, I, I, I think we're probably going to see some level of manipulation of the truth of exactly what level of infections have played out. And that's, mm. I think that's just going to lead to a lot of uncertainty in the market um, for all equities. But, you know, the gold equities will tend to trade on some of that as well, because when the US dollar weakens, um, gold tends to perform quite strongly. And when gold performs strongly, then the equities um, tend to leverage that effect. Now, it's time to get to the serious part of the discussion because um, now now you're warmed up a little bit. Um, <laughs> Lion Selection Group, you're an executive director there. This is a listed, ASX listed, LSX is the code there. It is a specialist investor in junior miners. Am, am I not uh, correct in assuming that? You're correct. Yep. We've been around for 23 years, Henry, as a, a listed investor, which provides a, call it a portfolio approach to the end of the market, which a lot of people sort of struggle with. Mm. So, I know you've got a massive geology background and mining background, but when you're looking at junior miners, when you're kicking the rocks and looking over a junior miner, what are you guys looking for in a miner to invest in? I think that people are just as important as projects in these companies. We've seen plenty of really interesting projects come along in the past and fall flat on their face because of decisions that people have made along the way in trying to bring that project to market or the 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 way that they've raised money along the way. There are all sorts of ways that, that poor quality people can affect an investment, which I think is something that all investors realise. But the intersection of that is particularly important when you need to raise larger and larger amounts of money to be able to crystallise the value which is contained within a project. Um, and, you know, the project is very, very important, but I think it probably is the way that um, the people in the project hold hands is one of the most important things to recognise in these things. It's not to say that, good quality people or um, fantastic people could make a um, silk purse out of a sow's ear. That's it's never going to be the case to make something profitable that can't be. But uh, mm. there's all sorts of shades of grey in mining projects and there's things that won't work and there's things that definitely will work and there's lots in between. And the way that people can, um, can be an overlay to that is that they can turn something that might be marginal or perhaps just not that uh, sexy and 
really um, really easy to make work, but they can uh, they can transform that into something profitable by recognizing the best approach to it. Uh, and it's always a question of bringing the, the, the capital to a project uh, and capital won't go towards a project on its own. It needs to have the people to attract it. Mm. One thing that we've seen recently, I guess, uh, and not just recently, but from uh, from when the Pope was a boy, is mining companies coming out with their drill results. And they always use quite evocative language, quite emotional language, spectacular drill results, bonanza kind of grades. Are these things that we should be questioning? I know that bonanza is actually an official kind of geology term for a grade of gold. Is spectacular kind of overused in the junior gold sector, do you think? Or is are very few of them really spectacular? What should we be looking for there? Well, I think it's easy to use the word spectacular when you're excited, <laughs> and most mining promoters uh, get that way. And bonanza is not just a um, official geological term. I think it was a cowboy show once as well, and that's probably appropriate when it comes to promoting small mining ventures. Uh, <laughs> yeah, look, the language does it, it gets overused in in many many cases, but there's there's just as many, I would say companies that underuse language when it comes to trying to promote their their wares maybe it's skewed towards the top end because we we always see the the spivvy promoters uh, being the ones who get the most the most out of their language shall we say there are plenty of companies who have a reasonable proposition in front of them but uh, fail to translate that into simple language as well so uh, i think from an investor trying to digest drill results or any other kind of technical information from miners uh, you need to try and put aside some of the english that's used and be able to focus on the figures all on its own which can't be an e- it's not always an easy thing to do but the language can be used to to mislead you and I've seen it a lot of, I mean, you know, you, you have all these conferences that people can get to. They're great for meeting companies, but it can be very easy to go and stand with an executive from a company and say, what's your project like? Now, they're always going to try and sell you exactly what they've got, and they'll provide every form of comfort under the sun as to why they think that theirs is a goer, even in comparison to the peers that have got the booths next door. Uh, but that's mm. not to say it is. It's just what they think. And uh, it's it's hard sometimes to be able to question them on what their assumptions are that lead them to that point of view as well. Yes. I've done a lot of the, the rounds of those conferences and talked to these guys, and, and some are very, very good at promotion. Others uh, are very much hiding their light under a bushel, and it's sometimes uh, hard to, uh, to to pick the good from the bad as they're uh, – it's interesting kind of uh, – business i guess one um one thing that pops up in some of the results and and i had a gentleman email me today with some questions of purely geological things so this is a bit of a um a bit of a quiz um he, he wanted to know what was the true meaning of uh what's the, the meaning of true width in a drill hole and how is that determined if it's not included in the announcement is that something that you would look for or is important to you yeah it definitely is so true width is just uh if if you were to Ignore the downhole interval. So someone might report five meters at 10 grams, but the mm. orientation of the vein that they've drilled through is very important, particularly as how it compares to the orientation of the drill hole. So if this was a horizontal vein and a vertical hole, then it would have intersected the true width, as in it's gone through the vein as by the shortest yep. distance possible. But if the converse is true, and most ore deposits that you find, particularly in gold mines, uh, have a very close to vertical orientation to them, and we tend to drill with holes which are varying somewhere between um, vertical or 30 degrees from vertical. So you're very unlikely to hit uh, a gold deposit, for example, with a perpendicular Mm -hmm. intersection. Um, So the calculation of true width is important because if you happen to have intersected it on about a five degree angle, you might return a 10 meter intersection from a one meter ore body. 
uh, and it's very so it's it's important to to know what that is because it'll have a lot of influence i guess on the eventual tenor and the um the build up of tons that comes from that and if your interpretation is that they've hit something which is 10 meters thick that's usually going to be a very different interpretation to something which is one meter thick in terms of driving excitement the grade will have a bit to do with it but the thinner it gets the higher it is to mine sure Okay, well, last last quiz question before we move on. Um, ounces per vertical meter is another thing that confuses some. I know. Any uh, any thoughts and insights on that? Yeah, ounces per vertical meter is a really really useful thumb. It it will give you a good indication of how much value is compact into the area which is being estimated as a resource. And so you know something like the super pit in Kalgoorlie is something which a lot of people understand. Has, has good economics to it because it's been mined continuously for well over 30 years. And uh, you know before that, there was underground mines there which were profitable for most of their existence. I think mm. the gold endowment uh, on ounces per vertical metre of the, the Golden Mile, which is where the super pit is in Kalgoorlie, is upwards of about 40,000 ounces per vertical metre, which puts it in rarefied air. That's, that's a very, very, very high endowment. The rule of thumb in gold is that if you've got circa 1,000 grams per vertical metre, then it should work. Less than that, and you're going to struggle with economics. And well above that, I mean, if you get 5,000 ounces per vertical meter, that should be great. You know, mm. something like Gold Roads Gruyere, I think, is uh, between nine and 10,000. So it's good. But the, the way that this can be used to mislead would be if you just stretch out a resource over a very, very, very large surface area, uh, but the geometries of it are otherwise not attractive or economic. Uh, it can become quite misleading in itself. So, you know, if you if your vertical meter is 10,000 horizontal meters long and the ore body is half a meter wide and, uh, and and the grade within that is is whatever it needs to be to create 10,000 vertic- ounces per vertical meter, um, you, you'll get a high multiple off it. But there's going to be a hell of a lot of effort involved in, um, in extracting that from the ground. So the, the OVM is a really useful rule of thumb, but it also needs to fall within a sensible mining shape and accessible mining shape. And I think that's probably where that metric can be misused. You don't see too many people going and deliberately drilling out a very long, thin resource. I mean, there's parts of the world where they occur. West Africa contains some tram line geology. So you can you can often get things which look quite attractive, but you know don't extract a hell of a lot of ounces at the end of the day uh, in parts mm. of the world like that. Because there's a lot of cost involved in drilling holes, so you know the yeah. effort might not be worth it at the end of the day. But uh, usually, uh, if you can find a company which can can create that uh, metric, it's it's useful, and it's also useful to understand how it varies as you go down through a deposit. If it's 10,000 ounces per vertical meter at the surface, and it's still 10,000 ounces per vertical meter 100 meters down, you're probably on a winner. Uh, mm. If it varies between uh, you know 500 and 10,000, then you really need to understand what the bulk um, or the average is. And I would assume uh, you know technology now is making uh, massive inroads into the way explorers and geologists are, are actually locating these resources. Am I, am I right in saying that? I don't think. Yes, yes, you are, and uh, and no, you're not. Both at the same time. Right. Over the last 20 years, there's been a, a wonderful. Uh, introduction of some new tools into the geophysicists toolkit. Some good examples of that are really close spaced magnetics, 3D seismic, which is something which has been brought to minerals from oil and gas. There's all sorts of other geophysical um, techniques which can be used, but the, the science behind them and the principles are not brand new. They've existed for quite some time and probably the enabling factor has been larger and larger computers, which enable bigger and bigger data sets to be compared. And often quickly right. uh, or side by side. So to get the most from that kind of stuff, 
30 years ago, there was no point collecting 20 meter space magnetics because you just couldn't look at it. You'd crash any computer you put it on. These days I could do it on my laptop. So uh, that sort of data has come into its own. It wasn't all that easy to collect that data previously. The things like drones have made close to surface, um, rapid time collection of close space data uh, a lot more economic as well. So th th there's a couple of aspects to it, but it's probably more the enabling factors than the actual technology itself. I, well, that that you, people have often said to me that I'm I'm wrong and right both at the same time. So you, you you're you're not alone in that, Headley. I have to say. Um, now you're an executive director of Lion Selection Group. Uh, this is an ASX listed uh, investor in junior miners. Tell us a bit about Lion Selection and uh, the company. It's trading what at forty five cents ish with an NTA of around fifty one. Am I right? You're right. Yep. Uh, so Lion Lion has been around, as I said before, for just over 23 years. Uh, the it's it's changed its uh, its listing a couple of times along the way there, but the original rump of shareholders, if you like, uh, have remained in this vehicle. We have always had the mantra to try and invest in a focused group of projects that we believe have the potential to be built into projects through the cycle. We're not traders. We pick a fairly focused portfolio and we follow those investments. And we're not not afraid to make, um, I suppose you'd call conviction calls on assets that mm. we think are well worth seeing um, the the lion's share of our money go into them. So we've had we've had a number of really good wins over that period of time. And we've been involved in building some uh, some pretty important companies to this stage. So uh, I think it was about 10 years ago, we exited a company called Catalpa. Lion had held at one stage about 55% of that. Uh, we'd sold down and then distributed a lot of that stock to our shareholders. And it wasn't long after that that Catalpa uh, became combined with Conquest by Jake Klein and is now Evolution. So we've got a lot of shareholders that found their way uh, via Lion into Evolution. Um, there's been a number of other, I mean, that's just one example. We've, we've had, uh, I think we've probably invested in about 75 individual names over that 23 years. So if we think about how many companies you've invested in, Henry, I, I suspect that's probably a low number compared to what anyone else has been <laughs> in the market for 23 years is invested in. But we've had out of that, uh, it would be about a dozen winners which have underpinned the port performance of the portfolio longer term. But what we try to do is to invest a pool of shareholders' money in a way which can be influential and helpful in building small companies. So right. for each one of them to hold well sub 1% each compared to putting it in line and then going into these companies and holding between five and 20%. There can be a conversation with management. We can help with strategy. We can help with marketing and we can help with the investment that's required to push these companies through the assessment and then development phases, which is um, where we see the, the the bulk of the uplift take place in our investments typically. And are these unlisted projects unlisted on the ASX or elsewhere or are these listed entities? They can be listed, they can be unlisted. At the moment, yeah. our net tangible asset backing contains, uh, well, the lion's share of it is accounted for by three individual situations. Two of them are in Indonesia. Uh, the first one of those is a joint venture with an Indonesian mining company called Medeca. So there's no access to this outside of Lion uh, unless you could invest in Medeca, which is Indonesian listed. And mm. Medeca is a mining company on its own. So if this in, if this investment party, which has a resource at the moment of about 2.4 million ounces, uh, could go to anywhere we think between five and 10 million ounces, um, and and that would have been ounces per vertical meter, well in excess of 10,000 ounces per vertical meter, uh, Henry. So we, we think mm -hmm. that's a wonderful investment. It's in a part of the world which I think a lot of retail holders would struggle to lunge at. So the the, the combination, I guess, of 
our background and experience identifying the project and then identifying a partner which is suitable to be working with in that part of the world are all the the things that we try to offer the next one Nusantara, uh, which is australian uh, stock exchange listed on its own it's it's uh, code is nus um, and that one was an unlisted company uh, we took part in helping to list it uh, the third one is a Canadian listed company called Erdine. So I guess between those three things that they've all come from quite unique backgrounds that might not be all that easy for retail shareholders or even institutional shareholders who want to play in that space to access yeah. all on their own. So aside from from those, um, and I'm not trying to pick uh, the lion selection brain, more your own personal brain, are any of the, the juniors out there at the moment uh, piquing your interest actually look like they could be the real deal is that uh, that people should be keeping an eye on. I, you know, Gold Road is one that I looked at some time ago and around 55 cents and just thought this is the real deal. This, you know, you could see the timeline as production. Are there any sort of uh, the new Gold Roads in the pipeline for you? I think, uh, well, uh, Gold Road's a really good example because I think those guys have done some things a little bit unconventionally but have succeeded really well, which proves that you don't have to go down the pathway of being a conformist to asset size and getting conventional bank debt and all the rest. They did a joint venture with Goldfields, whom mm. the individuals had a wonderful relationship with, so it worked well for them. But it's also capitalised uh, what could have been a challenging asset for a junior to bring into existence with a very experienced operator, Goldfields. So great example there. I still think that those guys have got a, a very promising uh, road in front of them. They've got some very talented geologists and some very exciting geology. So I, I think they're one to watch in the gold space, but they're hardly a junior these days. Look, in the, in the, in the sub-production space, uh, I like what Capricorn are doing. I think Mark Clark uh, has a wonderful background and relationships that enable them to put a project on the ground quite economically. Um, you know, there's a lot of money can be wasted and lost by spending capital in the wrong places. And I think um, he and his team have the right idea of how to do that. So Capricorn in the development space, I think, has the right attitude to cost uh, and CapEx deployment. I think they'll do very well in terms of building themselves into a producer. In the exploration space, I mean, there's a hell of a lot of uh, really interesting exploration uh, successes taking place at the moment. De Grey is one in the Pilbara, looks like they're onto something with size and scale. The metallurgy is not going to be as easy as gold conventionally is, but I think um, the risk of that uh, falls away as you find a bigger and bigger project. Uh, so De Grey is looking like one which it could be a meal for someone one day, uh, or it could be developed mm. into you know a, a gold mine fairly rapidly because it will access capital much more readily than I suspect a lot of other companies can. Um, so they've done a great job. And I guess in the pre-discovery space, um, companies like Gateway, uh, I think they've got some fantastic geologists involved. They're on some geology around sandstone, which has not really been all that well looked at over the last 20 years. But there are so many different styles of mineralization cropping up on, on their ground, but some of their neighbours as well to say there's a big system there and there's bound to be more mineralization to be found. So that's a short list all within the gold space. Uh, some of the ones that I watch. That's a great list. Headley, it's been absolutely fantastic having you on the show. Really enjoyed uh, your thoughts and insights. And we could probably go on for a long time. We could go on forever. We might have to do a part two of this. But uh, it, it's been really, really interesting to have you uh, chatting. And I, I wish you all the best with Lion Selection Group, which uh, does trade at a bit of a discount to its NTA. I guess part of that is the uh, is the fact that uh, you know some of the projects are um, harder to value, shall we say. I, I guess that that's part of the issue. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah, I'd agree with that. And we're working very hard on bringing those things to a, an accurate crystallization. So uh, mm. for our shareholders who are involved, we're hoping for a payday. And um, 
we're all big shareholders ourselves, so we're fairly well motivated on that one. But I think you've hit the nail on the head. Good to hear. Uh, Headley, thanks once again. It's been an absolute delight having you on the couch and good luck with everything. Thanks for having me, Henry. All the best. (laughs) 